in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, we come to a climax of what the apostle has been saying, specifically from verse 26, but really summing up everything that he began to say in verse 17 of this chapter. It's not the end of the matter. He's going to go on and he's still going to add some things to this going into chapter 2 and the whole argument doesn't really sum up until the end of chapter 4. It's not the end of the matter, but verse 30 is what we might call a crescendo in musical terms or a a mountain peak in geographical terms. 1 Corinthians 1.30 is like a mountain peak. Now, I think it's safe to say, I've never done it, but I think it's safe to say that no one climbs to the top of Mount Everest to look at their watch and walk back down. Anybody who climbs to the top of a mountain, who summits a mountain, takes the time when they get there to just stop and look around. It seems like that, to me, would be the whole point of climbing to the top of a mountain, would be to look around and and get a view of things that you don't have at, at the bottom. Now, here we have reached a mountain peak. Not, not just in this portion of Scripture, not just in this epistle. I would say this is a mountain peak in all of Scripture. If we, if we think in our minds of certain texts of Scripture that would say, these are the mountain peaks, these are the Everests of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1.30 is one of, those, one of those mountain peaks. And so I do want to take the time as we, as we get to the top of it to stop and look around and see things from a perspective that that we typically don't see as we're working our way up or working our way down. And I want to do that today first by simply considering Paul's flow of thought. In other words, the question for today is basically what is Paul doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30? Now why would we ask that? Well, think about what we've already seen. He's already taken us back to our calling, consider your calling. But then last week we saw that he took us from our calling to the caller. So he's already traced the work of God in us back up to God himself. And he did that on purpose to remind us of God's sovereignty and salvation, of God's sovereign election in eternity. And then he told us in light of that there in verse 29 that we shouldn't boast in the presence of God. Now if we're thinking about the Corinthian uh, controversy, we would say, it seems like Paul's covered the basis. Go from the, the calling to the caller, God. Consider God and what He's done. And therefore, nobody should be boasting. Okay, point, point made and point taken. Why go further? What else is there to say at this point? Well, again, going to the, the, the picture of climbing a mountain. At this point, verse 30, it's as if... Paul turns around and looks back down the hill to us. We, th- we think we've reached the top and we say, this is a great view. Paul looks down from even higher and says, no, there's, there's still further to go. Keep coming up. If you think the view is glorious from here, wait till we get to the top. That's what he's saying here. God's choice of sinners in eternity is grand. But that's only the half of it. That's what he's saying. And what he does in these next two verses, especially in verse 30, is very, very important. As a matter of fact, one one man likened 1 Corinthians 1.30 to other passages of Scripture. 
like Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He says 1 Corinthians 1.30 is a text sort of like that. It's, it's a big deal, in other words. He likened it to a passage like Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He chose us in Him. He predestined us for adoption. We have redemption through His blood. We've obtained an inheritance. You've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. He says 1 Corinthians 1.30 is kind of like that text, except even more compact. He likens it to a passage like Colossians 2, 9, and 10. Speaking of Christ, it says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, or you have been made complete in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Or 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That, that man, his name's George McDearman, he, he calls these kinds of passages, quote, densely concentrated expressions of the greatness, the extent, the fullness, and the sufficiency of the salvation accomplished by Christ for His people. And then he adds into that number of, of those texts like that, he adds... 1 Corinthians 1.30 Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 1.30 we have gospel concentrate. We have a densely concentrated expression of the greatness, the extent, the fullness and the sufficiency of the salvation accomplished by Christ for His people. Now, Maybe up until this point in your Christian pilgrimage, you've read 1 Corinthians, you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you've probably read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, and maybe in reading through it, you didn't stop and say, I, I feel like I have just come across a mountain peak. I've summited Everest in the scriptures. I've, I've, I've stumbled upon a densely concentrated expression of the greatness, the extent, the fullness, and the sufficiency of the salvation accomplished by Christ Jesus. Maybe you've not noticed that before. And so what I want to do is, is show you why he would say that. Look with me at the passage, and I want to show you some things that uh, sort of as an introduction and overview, hopefully just to encourage you to consider this passage more deeply. I want to give a little bit of an overview, and then we'll open up some of these details in the weeks to come. The first thing that I want you to see here is that Paul continues addressing God's activity. He continues addressing God's activity. Just like we saw last week, he took us from our effectual calling to God the caller himself. He took us from the time when we were effectually called or brought us into salvation or, or, or brought into salvation. He took us into eternity where we were chosen by God. And we talked last week about how important that is for our souls, not just to stop at ourselves and what God has done in time, but to even go back into eternity to God Himself. That was, I don't know if you noticed, that was reiterated last Lord's Day evening when we talked about our response to God's faithfulness. Who, whose mind 
is at perfect peace. Well, it's the man whose mind is stayed on God because he trusts in God. You're not at perfect peace because you're not stayed on God. What is the implication or the application of that is our minds need to go to God. Go, go past that. So Paul has, has done that. He's taken us back toward God. And, and if, you, if you've read much of, of Paul and his writings, you know that very often when Paul tra- finds a trail leading up to God, he runs up that trail and just hangs out there for a little bit in doxology. And that's kind of what he's doing here. He's taken us into eternity. He's addressed God's sovereign electing grace. And then he just stays there with God and he's showing us how that work of God comes into time. He points to God as source. Look at the verse. And because of Him. That phrase, because of, or you might just have of, is a preposition of source. And the picture that's painted by this preposition is that of Water, like a spring, we, we would say, very often we would say, well, I, I, where do you get your water? Well, from a spring. Well, what's the source of the spring? Well, that, you can go even further to some underground aquifer somewhere where water is coming up to the ground. That's the source, and that's the picture here. God is the source of what is about to be addressed. God is the spring or the fountain out of which comes the rest of the verse. So God, He's showing us, is a source But he also points to God as a giver. He says, because of Him, you are are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, or who of God is made to us wisdom. There we have a similar phrase, of God or from God. That is also a preposition of source, but it's a different word. The idea seems to be by in the use of that word, or the picture, is that of uh, the giver of a gift. Now, I wouldn't say that the, the spring at my house is giving me a gift of water. I would say, well, I get my water from that source. But if somebody hands me a gift, that's a little bit different. It's a source, but it's a different kind of, of way to think about a source. And that's the picture here. God is the giver of a gift. Wisdom from God. So God remains the ultimate focus of our attention specifically God's work in our salvation, and even more, in, more specifically, God is here shown as the source and the giver. So Paul stays with God. He stays with God's activity. The second thing I want you to notice is that Paul takes us into our union with Christ. He takes us into our union with Christ. If, if we say... He's continuing with God's activity. Okay, well, then what has God done? Read the text. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Those three words, in Christ Jesus, is the language of the theological category or doctrine or subject that, that we call union with Christ. A massive subject. John Murray says that union with Christ is really the central truth in the whole doctrine of salvation. In other words, you might say, well, I think I understand the gospel and salvation. If I said, well, explain to me union with Christ, you say, well, I've never heard of that. I'd say, well, well, then you have not plummeted the depths. 
Not that you don't know anything, but you need to go further down or, or further up, so to speak, to the mountain peak. A.W. Pink said that the subject of union with Christ is the most important, the most profound, and the most blessed of any that is set forth in sacred scripture. A massive doctrine. And that's the subject that is really central to 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. So Paul keeps our eyes on God. And in keeping our attention on God and showing us what God has done, he takes us into the most profound truth in the Scriptures. As others have said, the, the entirety of the new covenant blessings are summed up in three words. In Christ Jesus. Or two words. In Christ. Everything. Now again, hopefully you're hearing that and you're saying, I, I didn't realize how huge this was. I think we need to go further. I want to understand more. That's, that's the point. So he takes us into our union with Christ. Thirdly, he connects our union with Christ to the topic of wisdom. He says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, the language of union, who became to us wisdom from God. Or who of God has made unto us wisdom. Now, wisdom, that's what he's been talking about. We've, we've talked about wisdom many times. That's what he's been talking about since basically verse 17. Wisdom. So Paul keeps our eyes on God, and then he takes us into the most profound truth in all of Scripture, and he relates that truth to the theme of wisdom that he's been addressing with the Corinthians. It's really, uh, in, in my opinion, astonishing how he does this. So he stays, we could say, this is... a would be quite an accomplishment for most of us. Paul stays on topic. Fourthly, he unpacks the idea of wisdom even further as it relates to our salvation. The text says, And because of Him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, there are four distinct subjects being mentioned here, and they're all important. But the language, the way that this is brought forth, would lead us to assume, or, or I would say suggest, that those last three words are what is called epexegetical. In other words, the, the three words, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, are Paul's exegesis of wisdom. These are given to further unpack the notion of wisdom. So, children, wisdom here is sort of like Russian nesting dolls. You ever seen those? You take the cap off, there's another one inside. You take the cap off, there's another one inside. Take the cap off, you just keep going down until you get to something so small that it's soon to be swallowed or lost. That's sort of the picture here. He, he, he says, Christ has been made to us wisdom. And you say, wow, wisdom. And Paul says, pop it open. Pop it open. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So Paul brings his point sort of to a, a doxological climax, a mountain peak. He points us to the work of God who has given us His Son so that being united to His Son, we have, in summary... All things. Or to put it in, in, in four terse statements, God has given us a person who is our wisdom. 
God has united us to this person, Christ Jesus. Through union with Christ, we have salvation. And in this passage, salvation is being set forth in these terms. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Or again, what we have here is a densely concentrated expression of the greatness, the extent, the fullness and sufficiency of the salvation accomplished by Christ for His people. We, I, I have always been impressed by men who can take the gospel and summarize it into, into brief terms so that they can then re-articulate it to others. Some of us have heard uh, over, overarching outlines like creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or God, man, Christ, redemption or, or repentance and faith, something like that. Some, some sort of outline to keep us in line when we're trying to share the gospel in a simple way. This might be the most simple one of all. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That's what Paul's doing. And there, and there are two applications that would come out of this that I think Paul's trying to convey to them. The first one is that the saints of God don't need to look any further than Christ. God's given everything in Christ. But then secondly, the saints of God can only boast in the Lord who has done all these things. So that's the broad overview of this verse. God has given us Christ who is our wisdom. God has united us to Christ. Through union with Christ we have salvation. And salvation is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And now that being said, I want to begin today by considering that first main idea, just sort of bridging the gap into this verse, and that is this. God has given us a person who is our wisdom. God has given us a person who is our wisdom. Now, I am stepping out of order here. If you can imagine that this text is, uh, the words and phrases here are uh, a, a gaggle of children playing. I'm going to pull out a few to the side, I'm going to address them separately, and then I'm going to put them back in, into the grouping and, and we'll see how the, the flow goes. But the words that I want us to focus on today are these words, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, or Christ Jesus, who of God is made to us wisdom. Now, why would I take these words out and address them separately? Well, again, it's because these words are what connect what he's about to say with everything that he said before. They, they connect us to the larger context of the passage, the ongoing discussion of human wisdom versus God's wisdom. In other words, I want you to see how this verse is relevant to everything else that's been said. If we're not careful, we read, verse, we read Scripture in, in very disjointed ways. A verse, a verse, a verse, a verse. And there are uh, liberal theologians who would come in and say, this doesn't even relate to what went before it. This is clearly another writer who is, has come along and has interjected in something or, or something to that effect. But I want you to show Paul's not off topic. He's carrying on with the same theme. Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God or Christ Jesus who of God is made to us wisdom. Now we've already noted that, that phrase, from God or of God is a preposition of source. The picture is that God has given a gift. God is giving something. That, that same preposition is used in chapter 1, verse 3. 
Grace to you and peace from God. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that word from, the, the peace is given by God. He gives it. He's a giver. In chapter 4, verse 5, each one will receive his commendation from God. How do we get the commendation? God gives it. Chapter 6, verse 19, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So God gives us the Holy Spirit. That's the picture. The giver of a gift. He's the source as He gives a gift. So here God is the giver of Christ Jesus and of wisdom. Or, more, more closely, God is the giver of Christ Jesus and thus wisdom in Him. That's what He's saying. And so that's why I say here God has given us a person who is our wisdom. Now this is obviously to be set over against man's wisdom, which has been Paul's sort of back and forth throughout this entire section. The alternative to man's wisdom is God's wisdom. Consider what we've seen already. God destroys the wisdom of the wise. That would be the wise of the world. God thwarts the discernment of the discerning, that is, of the world. They have their their wisdom and their discernment. And then God comes along with His and He confounds everything that they have. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. They want the wisdom of the world. We, God comes in with something else and we, in Him, we give Christ. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. The world has its standards. God has His standards. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. The wise of the world. You see, there's a back and forth. World's wisdom, God's wisdom. The world's wisdom, God's wisdom. The world's wisdom, God's wisdom. This whole section is predicated on the reality that mankind has his own supposed wisdom, which is really foolishness, but... We have our own idea of wisdom. And God has His own wisdom. And that men see God's wisdom as foolish. But the feeling is mutual. Because God sees man's wisdom as foolish. But they are in competition. And so now He is saying, in effect, after all of that back and forth, God has given us a person. And that person is our wisdom. That's what He's saying. This is to be set over against man's wisdom. In other words, Paul is saying, what man seeks wrongly, God has given rightly. Paul is saying here what he says in all of his epistles. If you pay attention, he has one message in all of his epistles, whether it's Galatian legalism, whether it's Colossian Gnosticism, whether it's Corinthian Sophism, in every epistle, he comes along beside the saints to remind them, look, I know your world, your culture, others around you who are lost, I know that they're telling you, you need something else. I just want to remind you, you don't need anything else. If you have Christ, you already have everything. That's what he's saying here. You already have it all. I think some of you would understand the illustration uh, if I said he's putting another bracelet on Rebecca's arm. Some of you remember that. In other words, the idea is he's putting another bracelet on the arm of the church to remind them that their bridegroom is far more glorious and far more uh, powerful and far greater than any of the men of the world. Don't look at them. You know that 
that picture that Washer used just a few weeks ago. That's what's what he's doing. He's saying, don't look at what they have. You already have the thing. Just keep walking towards him. God has already given us wisdom, and he gave it when he gave us Christ Jesus. And again, we typically, when we think of wisdom, we don't typically think this way. And so if we're going to make sense of this, I want to revisit this idea of wisdom as it's used here, how it's to be understood biblically, and how that's been distorted by by fallen men, because this is what we do. We take a, a good thing or a concept given from God and we distort it and we twist it. That's what the human race has done with wisdom. A few things we've already said about wisdom in, in the Corinthian context. Paul began by setting at opposition, in verse 17, the gospel with literally the word of wisdom. So we have the word of the cross. The world has the word of wisdom. They've got their message, we've got our message. They've got their preachers, we've got our preachers. In the Greco-Roman culture, a high value was placed on using clever, eloquent rhetoric as a way to puff men up. The, this concept of wisdom was, was a doctrine, a philosophy, a worldview, and it had its preachers. And they would preach, they'd say, we found the new thing, let me articulate it for you. We found the new thing, let me articulate it for you. It was their worldview. And so when Paul sets the gospel over against this notion of wisdom, and I read this from one commentator, Paul is attacking rhetoric as a value system. Keep that in your mind. Value system. Wisdom was the rubric used by the Greeks to measure and weigh the world around them. It was the way that they would determine, is this a good thing or is, it, is this a bad thing? Is this a profitable thing or is it an unprofitable thing? Is it worth my time or is it not worth anything? And as we've said, this wisdom always centered on man. As mankind was always asking, how can we as men exalt ourselves as men? Wisdom wasn't just an intellectual pursuit for them. It was their worldview. The scheme or plan by which men seek to make some advancement in their own condition, to their own glory. Wisdom. Now if I could say it as simply as possible, this has taken me, however long we've been studying this, it's taken me this long to even begin to wrap my mind around this idea. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to set it forth in, in such a succinct way that it's easy to understand. Wisdom, or the wisdom of man, is man's way of bringing about the desired and expected purposes that he has for himself, the way that he goes about it. And again, they had their preachers who were always heralding a new way. Here's how we can accomplish our purposes. And it always came back to that. How can we achieve the desires and expectations that we have for ourselves? That was their wisdom. Now, what's the problem with that? Man's desires and expectations are corrupted by sin. So if, you, if your desires are selfish and vain, and you say, well, here's, here's what I expect, and here's my purpose, and that's corrupt and, and sinful, well, then the way that you go about achieving that is going to be corrupt and sinful. That's what had happened. What man desires for himself and what he expects to be the prize of his labors is contrary to God. 
It opposes God. What man boasts in shows this to be the case. And this is why Paul is going to appeal to Jeremiah chapter 9 in verse 31. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So this is what men boast in. This is, in their mind, this is the way to achieve their purposes. If I could just have some wisdom, if I could just have some might, if I could just have some riches. That sounds awfully close to me. It sounds awfully close to wisdom, power, noble birth that he addresses here. It sounds like the very opposite of foolish, weak, low and despised, things that are not. Man boasts in all these things. God chooses the opposite. But when we look at what man boasts in, what we're seeing is is that man has set up his own purposes and expectations that are opposed to God. And this theme from Jeremiah is the background of Paul's theology of wisdom and of boasting and this great reversal that has been introduced by God. God comes in and takes us the complete opposite direction. So for the Greeks, man's way of bringing about the desired and expected purposes of man, wisdom, were the same as they were for Israel in Jeremiah's day. They boasted in the same things. Jeremiah said, don't boast in that stuff, boast in the Lord. Paul picks that same theme up and he says, you're, doing, you're still doing the same thing. Don't boast in that stuff. Boast in the Lord. Wisdom, power, and riches were the things that men want to boast in. Here's the truth. It's the same in our day. Nothing's changed. We're not at all different than those of Corinth or those of Israel in Jeremiah's day. Man's way of bringing about the desired and expected purposes of man revolve around intellectual attainment, power and influence, and material wealth. If I can get those things, I I will achieve my purpose. And this is the inevitable fruit of rejecting the desires and purposes of God, as Christ accused the Pharisees in Luke 7. You've rejected the purpose of God for yourself. That's what mankind does. All of mankind, we reject the purpose of God. God has a purpose. We say, no, I have my purpose. Here's what I expect. Here's my purpose. And the way that I get to that... I'll decide, but that way is called wisdom. Man's wisdom. Man's way of bringing about the desired and expected purposes of man. Now what is Paul bringing to oppose that idea? God's wisdom. The wisdom of God. God's wisdom is God's way of bringing about the long expected purposes of God. See, God is at the center now. What does that imply? It implies that God has expectations, God has purposes, and God has a way that He's going to go about achieving those purposes. Now back in verse 24, we talked about wisdom as it is, we would say, ad intra or wisdom in God and how it comes incarnate in the Son of God. And we said that wisdom, this, I think this was Owen, wisdom is the directive principle of all of the divine operations. The directive principle of all divine operations or God's way of bringing about the long-expected purposes of God. That's God's wisdom. Now think about how that comes out of God to us. How should we as men think about wisdom in a biblical way? How how should we think about God's wisdom or God's way of bringing about His long-expected purposes in us and for us? And It's really the same except 
when it comes out of God, it comes to us in the form of special revelation. God reveals to us His purposes. God reveals to us His expectations. God reveals to us the way to bring that about. That's God's wisdom given to us. Think of the Proverbs. We we think of Proverbs as God's book of wisdom in the inspired canon. But what what are Proverbs? What is the purpose of the book of Proverbs? Well, it's God revealing to us the way that we should live in order to achieve His purposes and expectations in our lives. So you read the Proverbs, you say, well, here's what God God expects, and here's how to go about it. God expects honesty. God expects good stewardship. God expects to raise godly children. Here's here's the way to do it. The way to bring about the long-expected purposes of God. Wisdom. But that's wisdom of God given to us. Wisdom from God. And it assumes that God has purposes, God has goals, God has plans, God has intentions for His people. Some of them we, we are to labor in His strength in order to see them brought about. Others of them He brings about objectively apart from us. He just works them in us, His plans and purposes. This assumes that God has expectations for our lives. Some of those we, are, we work along with Him and carry out in His strength. Others of them He executes by His sovereign power. God's wisdom for us. God bringing about His long-expected purposes in and through us. Now, without naming all of the specifics, we can conclude from that idea, wisdom, and then wisdom as it is in God, that God has, from eternity, had a purpose for His people as a collected whole and as individuals. God's had a purpose. We can conclude that from eternity, God has had works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them in order to bring about His long-expected purposes in the world. We can conclude that God's wisdom because of sin is contrary to man's wisdom. It has to be an entirely new way of thinking and seeing and acting in every realm of life. And we can conclude that only God's wisdom God's way of bringing about the long-expected purposes of God, only that will actually bring about the long-expected purposes of God. We can't do it in our own way, our own wisdom. God has to do it in His wisdom. Now, fallen men see that as bondage. Wait, God has purposes, and I can't establish my own? God has expectations, and, and I don't, I'm not the one who gets to decide what my, my expectations are? And, and I just got to follow in His way and do what He says. And I, I don't get a say in the matter. Fallen men see that as bondage. It's limiting. It's restricting to them. Fallen men think that freedom is found in casting off the restraint of God's wisdom, God's way, God's purposes. If, in order to get really free, we have to throw off all of that. And then I get to fix my purposes. And then I get to go about achieving those purposes my way. And then I'm, I'm truly free. And fallen men would see submission to God's wisdom as a burden too hard to bear because they delight in showing themselves wise. They they see freedom in glorying in their own achievements and creativity. And so anything that says, no, you don't get to establish your purpose, you don't get to set forth your expectations, and you don't even get to come up with a way to go about the purpose and expectations of God. You have to follow God's way. They say, that's too restrictive. I don't want that. If we go take this concept back to the Garden of Eden, for example, we're we're by nature sons and daughters of Adam. 
So we go back to the Garden of Eden. In Eden, God had wisdom, and he revealed wisdom to Adam. In other words, God revealed to Adam God's way for bringing about the long-expected purposes of God. Work the garden and keep it. Don't eat from that tree. Take dominion, fill the earth, subdue it. That's it. God's way to bring about God's long-expected purposes. Now, what did Adam do? Adam said, I don't want to do that. He threw off God's way. He went after his own wisdom. He didn't want God's purpose, and therefore he rejected God's way. He came up with his own purpose and his own way. That is his own wisdom. And this is how we all are by nature. In union with Adam, we're sinners. So in Adam, our standing before God is only as offenders. We're cut off from the Edenic temple. In Adam, we are cut off from the holy places where God dwells. We cannot go near to God with Adam as our federal head. In Adam, we're destined only for death because of sin. And fallen men recognize the disconnect. Fallen men recognize there's something that I, I don't have that I need or I want. I can't get it. We notice dissatisfaction with what is. And we notice a craving for more. But our foolish hearts are darkened so that we just keep living according to our own wisdom. We keep going about trying to achieve our purposes and our expectations our way. We just keep doing that. That's what keeps things going. I'm, I'm after it. I'm after it. I'm after it. Never achieving. Never attaining. And then we glory in our designs even though we never actually attained the ends. Now, that's man in his fallen condition. Of course, God looks down from heaven and sees all of this. He sees it for what it really is. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There we learn man had intentions, man had thoughts, but they were only evil. And God, God could see that. Or as we read in, in Psalm 53, also Psalm 14, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Man turns aside, away from God. He's going after his own way, his own wisdom. Man's way of bringing about the desired and expected purposes that he has for himself are only evil continually. That's man's wisdom, man's way. Now, what does God do? Based on our text, what does God do? God has given us a person who is our wisdom. Christ Jesus is wisdom from God given to us as a gift. In other words, God intervenes and interposes His wisdom in the place of ours in the person and work of Christ. While man is busy with his way of bringing about the desired and expected purposes that he has for himself, God comes in and provides His way of bringing about His long-expected purposes for man and even... For God Himself. And He does that in a person. That's what Paul's getting at. Getting, getting election in eternity? Yeah, that's great. Election to what? A person. 
You've been brought into fellowship with a person. God gave us a person. That's what he's saying. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. God has given us a person who is our wisdom. God has given us a person who is his way of bringing about the long-expected purposes of God for us. Now, what does that imply? Well, that implies God has purposes for us. From eternity, God had established purposes and expectations for us. We've already seen His eternal decree. In Himself, He hath decreed all things whatsoever come to pass. We've we've talked about the, the part of that decree which goes into predestination. He determines that some will be saved. In election, he, he elects the very ones who will be saved. He brings that to pass in our effectual calling in time. None of that was an afterthought in God. It, it goes back to the decree eternally in God. There, there never was a time where there was a God who had not decreed our salvation. God had purposes. Your salvation was not an afterthought in God's mind. It was His eternal wisdom. It was His way of bringing about the long-expected purposes of God in you and in me. Now, you'll very often hear people will kind of uh, poke fun at an evangelism that would walk up to a lost person and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and you know, the irony is the lost person responds by saying, well, that sounds great. I also love me and I also have a wonderful plan for my life. So I guess me and God are good. Sounds like we both have the same thing going on here. And, and, and we would rightly condemn that as evangelism. That's not what evangelism is. That, that doesn't work. The reality, though, biblically speaking... Brothers and sisters, church, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not false. That's not weak theology. That's biblical. God does have a purpose and a future for His people. God's plan started in eternity. God has never expected anything out of your life except that you will be with Him in eternity. We could put it this way. You exist so that God could save you. That's why you exist. Or or to go even further, you exist because God wanted to save you. Vessels of mercy. I'm going to make a, I'm going to craft a vessel here. Give it a name. Why? I'm going to pour out my mercy on that thing for all of eternity. A vessel of mercy. God has purposes. Now the difference between what men tend to think when they hear when they have their own purposes and plans and what God has purposed from eternity is that God actually has to intervene into the plans and purposes the the wisdom of the lost in order to interject his plans and purposes even though that was all a part of his plans and purposes. But God does have purposes for his people. Secondly, this this truth God gave us a person who is our wisdom, this truth teaches us that God knows that we cannot achieve these purposes on our own. God knows that we can't do it by ourselves. We couldn't do it by ourselves. The fact that Christ is wisdom from God to us 
serves to remind us that God knew that we could not achieve His purposes for us on our own. Why? We didn't want to. Even if we could somehow have accomplished it, we didn't want to. And even if we somehow wanted to, we couldn't have accomplished it on our own. Why? Because we were drunk in our own wisdom. Our own way of accomplishing our own purposes. We were, we were, we were dancing around blinded. I got the picture of you know, somebody who's, who's made it to the point of the lampshade is on their head. You know, they're dancing around frolicking in ignorance and stupidity blinded by their own wisdom, which is really foolishness. But that's where we are in sin. And God knew that. God looked down from heaven and said, they can't do anything. They don't even see that what they think is wisdom is actually folly. What they think is a way to advancement is actually a way to destruction. He knew that. And so God, what did He do? He gave us a person who is our wisdom. God interrupted our sin party and gave us His Son, Christ Jesus. Thirdly, in giving us Christ Jesus, God effectively brings about His own long-expected purposes. In other words, God had purposes for us. God had a way that He was going to achieve those purposes. Is there anyone in in the Bible that we can think of who ever said any statement like this? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, it was Christ Jesus Himself. He is the way that God brings about His long-expected purposes. It's a person. In giving us Christ... Our standing before God is changed from offender to righteous. In giving us Christ, we are reconciled to God, brought back to the holy place where God is. In giving us Christ, we're no longer destined for death, we're destined for life. In the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, God brought about His long-expected purposes for us, for His people. All that the world in darkness seeks, God has already provided for His people. They're they're clamoring, they're chasing, they're they're pawing at the door, trying trying to get at that which they cannot grasp. They can't find it. God, for the Christian, He's already given it. Already given it in completion, in fullness, in Christ. The the chief labor, again, of Paul's epistles is often just to show Christians that we already have all that we need to bring about all of the purposes of God for us in Jesus Christ. There's not more. You don't go on to more. He he is it. The person is it. He is the way that we see God's purposes fulfilled in our lives. Again, the magnitude of statements like He would graciously give us all things, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, complete in Him, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You see, what Paul is getting at here is the fullness of everything that the believer has been given is found in a person. Not predestination, not election, not not even effectual calling apart from the person. None of that amounts to anything if if we're not called into the fellowship of His Son. It's glorious where He's going. A densely concentrated expression of the greatness, the extent, the fullness, and the sufficiency of salvation accomplished by Christ for His people. 
So hopefully, hopefully that just that little bit is sufficient to whet your appetite. Study this verse a little bit. Read through it. We're going we're gonna to spend some time here. I, my, my plan is to take each one of these ideas eventually in particular, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and, and spend some time understanding and unpacking the gospel as, it, as those terms relate to it. But if you're not careful, you'd read right over this. Jesus Christ for the believer becomes the embodiment of all salvific need and as such completely and thoroughly supplants all that carnal men seek. He just comes in the place of it. Everything that carnal men are after, He just comes in and gets rid of it. Now, here's the thing. There is a sense in which that is true as an absolute, eternal, unchangeable fact. Christ is everything for the believer. He's all we need. God, in giving us Christ, gave us everything right out of the door. That never changes. But there's also a sense in which the application and the working out of that in our minds and in our hearts is is actually what constitutes the Christian life. The Christian life is living in this world coming to terms with this absolute, eternal, unchangeable fact. God already gave you everything you need. It's in a person. Well, yeah, well, now, now that I understand the gospel, I need, to, I need to understand how to do this and how to do that. No, the only way that's going to work is by going back to the person. Christ is, because of who He is and what He's done, the embodiment of all salvific need. Everything that we need. And the problem is that though, though we have seen some of that reality and in our, in our journey, whether long or short as Christians, we, we might have seen little glimpses of that here or there and we're, we're beginning to grasp it. Oh, I see. Christ is everything. Oh, okay, I see. Christ is everything. The reality is we have, we have not yet experienced the fullness of it. Really, it won't be until glory when we realize what we actually had in our, in our Christian walk. But the Christian life is just coming to realize that more and more. Everything's in Christ. Everything that we need is in Him. And sin or temptation or growth in grace, these are all occasions when we go to a person and we draw from Him everything that we need. Remember, God's purpose for us is ultimately that we be made like His Son. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Well, how does God bring that about? His Son through the virtue that is found in Christ, the fullness of wisdom and power. And you and I have to learn throughout our lives what it means and what it looks like to go to God and draw upon Christ. Draw from Him. Learn to see how He has made provision in a person. A person. Again, if we go back to the the picture of the Garden of Eden, Adam's relationship with God was perfect. It was personal. It was blessed. Sin comes into the picture. We, what, what is our relationship by nature? It's one of enmity, condemnation, and curse. That's our relationship to God. Enmity, condemnation, curse. What we have to learn, if you're a Christian, what we have to learn is how to, uh, how to think of or really how to believe what your relationship with God is now. In Adam... 
condemnation, curse, enmity. Okay, if you're a Christian, you're not in Adam anymore. What is my relationship to God now? How, how, how should I think about that? We have to learn the answer to that question. How do we relate to God? Not how as in by what method. Well, pray and read your Bible. No, how as in what is the present status of my relationship with God? The answer is Christ. Christ. That's the answer. And all, of that, all that that reality entails. The point being the fullness of the purposes of God for us are found in Christ Himself. How were you rescued from sin? Christ. How, how can we be brought to God? Christ. Well, what is, what is our standing before God now? Christ. How, how do I live to God now? Christ. What hope do I have on the final day? Christ. Well, what, what, what will be my plea before God's throne? Christ. It's Christ. All of it in a person. That's what Paul's getting at. We as believers, we, we don't reject God's purposes for ourselves. We embrace them. And we cling to them as if we're about to slip off of a skyscraper, except we're, we're white-knuckling Christ, a person. Greg Beale says, God has given us Christ so that we should never need anything else for our salvation. All of God's purposes for us, Christ in Him. Christ is wisdom given to us from God. Paul has compacted this all-encompassing truth into a few words. And it really is a glorious reality to think. Just think that we can go even deeper, as it were, into the heart of God. We can go deeper than the eternal decree. Further back than that, even. And find that God would make His own Son over to us. That He would give us His Son to be all in all for us. That He would give us Christ to answer for our sins. To bear the punishment that was due to us. To seal our eternal fate. To represent us this very moment in the court of heaven. Christ. It's an astonishing reality. He's given us everything in a person. Which is, on, on the one hand, we say, well, that's a glorious reality. And that is, these are wonderful truths that we should know and love and adore and sing and tell others. But even beyond that, what does that say about this person? That this one individual figure, however you want to think of God-man, this figure, in Him is found every drop of salvific satisfaction and fullness for every saint that has ever lived from for now and into eternity. This one figure, it's all in Him. And God says, I'm going to give you Him. Now how does this play into Paul's purpose for writing this epistle. We remember the, the Corinthian controversy, worldliness, had come into the church that had led to pride, had come and, and led to strife and division and factions in the church, which wasn't uncommon. If, again, if you read the epistles, you know this was everywhere. As another writer puts it, many of the first Christian churches brought together people from such distinct and diverse social classes that conflict was inevitable. Slaves and free, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, and traditional Jews and permissive Gentiles found that they were no longer separated by their social status but were united 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he asked this question, how could such a congregation possibly hold together? Christ. The answer is Christ, always. God has given us a person, and He is our wisdom. It's a person given and a work performed that unites Christians beyond temporal concerns. Remember, 1 Corinthians is the epistle of the cross. Paul just keeps dragging them back to the foot of the cross and saying, look, because he knows that the more we do that, the more we look at Christ, the more temporal uh, concerns fizzle away. We look at Him and we focus on Him. We rest in what He's done. We hope with confidence in what He will do. Paul says, in effect, stop fixing your eyes on men. Not even your own selves, not even your preachers. Stop fixing your eyes on men and behold God's work in Christ. And when you do that, all of these petty distinctions and things, they just fizzle away. You look back down after looking and they're gone. That's what he's saying. So may God give us the grace to do the same. Let's pray. As they were eating, He, that is Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And so we break the bread, and as we see the breaking of the bread, we are reminded of Jesus' words. Take, this is my body, broken for us. Enduring on the cross, the wrath of God for sinners. But also consider Christ's disposition in offering. Take, it's for you, give it, or, or I'm giving it to you, eat it. He, he, he offers himself freely and he beckons all who would come to him freely. All who come to him, he casts out none. We have a wonderful Savior. So as the elements are passed, we are to give our attention to Christ. Enduring the cross for our sake. His body broken in our place. His blood poured out for our sins. The new covenant sealed in His blood for us. Meditate upon what Christ has done and then we'll come and we'll have communion.